Good morning. I'd like to give a special thank you to our musicians this morning. That was wonderful. We have a special treat for our speaker this morning, but before that, I would like to, uh, first of all, welcome everyone and thank you for joining us and invite you to join me in an opening prayer. So as I take a nice deep breath and ground myself, I choose to know in this moment that there is only one power, one presence, one divine energy that I call God. And I know that this energy, this power, this life source is all that there is. It indwells me and everyone here and everyone and everything. And from this place, I know that I am enough. I am complete. I am worthy. I am whole. I have everything that I need to allow me to step into my day, to complete my tasks with grace, energy, and love. And I am so grateful for this knowing, this understanding, deep within me, in my soul, my heart, my spirit. And I allow it to unfold today in beautiful, exciting ways. And so please join with me in now saying, and so it is. So our speaker today is Dr. Jennifer Bowerman. She was born in Oxford, England, and she obtained her BSc in sociology and later a master's degree from the University of Saskatchewan. And after many years working in government organizations specializing in human rights, employment standards and safety services, a doctorate in management from Southern Cross University with a focus on action learning. Dr. Jennifer is a teacher of organizational culture, leadership and learning, organizational behavior, and international business. Always a strong challenger to the organizational status quo, one of her strengths is asking good questions. Jennifer has traveled widely and brings that experience to the board of our center. She has been a member of the Center for Spiritual Living for approximately five years. Please help me welcome to the stage Dr. Jennifer Bowerman. Thank you, Sandra. Good morning, everybody. Well, I'm here, before I actually start, there are three things I want to point out to you. One is that I'm here because I truly felt that our minister, Dr. Patrick, and his wife, Laura, who worked so hard in this organization, deserve to finish off their vacation with this extra day. So uh, when they asked me to speak and they gave me the reason, I said, no, you know, no doubt you enjoy your vacation. So I'm sure you'll all agree with me that he needs to do that. It is so well deserved. <laughs> Secondly, it's Human Rights Day. And I used to work for the Human Rights Commission and had I realized that when I was actually asked to speak today that it was Human Rights Day, I'd have centered my, my talking around human rights because it's... Uh, 
philosophy, uh, the equality philosophy is something that's very dear to my heart. So, I, but I didn't. But anyway, I just want everybody to keep that in their minds and remember that it's so important that we treat everybody in our world with grace and dignity and equality. And that seems to be harder to do given some of the things that are going on uh, south of our border. So, uh, and, and even in our own province. So, you know, just, just remember the importance of human rights. And then the other thing I wanted to tell you is that I am not an ordained minister. Um, I've been teaching for many years now, and increasingly I find that whatever I teach seems to have a spiritual bent to it. So um, please understand that uh, when, I, when I talk to you today. So my presentation today starts with a little quotation, and I'm waiting for somebody to, aha, this is what we're going to be talking about today because the theme is light, coming into the light. And um, so I, I'm offering you my story of leading and living and growing through change and how it pertains to our center and what's happening with our center. And, you know, it sometimes seems dark and the road seems narrow, but we keep on trucking and if we keep on doing that with hope and belief and values ahead of us, then we will come out into the light. So that is uh, the theme of my presentation today. And someone, someone told me this when I was still working for an organization. Life is curly. Don't try and straighten it out. <laughs> And I don't know about you guys, but I've spent so much of my life trying to straighten it out, and it hasn't worked, you know? I always wanted the curly, luscious, beautiful hair. I never had it. The people who uh, have that hair always wanted mine straight and fine and, you know, go in the shower, dry it, and wear it. Um, we never want what we've got. We always want to change it and make it to something different. So the idea of not straightening it out, but being happy with whatever it is that life puts in front of you is, I think, a really important message. So today I'm going to talk to you about three main points. Uh, the first one is the discovery of white space in change moments. And we all go through change moments, those moments when, you know, you don't know what to do, and it seems pretty bleak and dark, and it's very easy to get sucked into those. So if we think of them differently, if our metaphor can be white space, and how we can color and change and put light onto that space, then it changes those moments. So that's the first thing, and then, Knowing and knowing, we can know in our head cerebrally, which most of us do, but knowing through action and viscerally, that's a different kind of knowing. And I think that that's very important for us as members of the center. And finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Q process and how we see it as a transformative process practice, the Q process and the spirit groups. 
which will make up the bulk of our center. And when we work through what that has to offer, it changes not only us, but it changes our center. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So, and this is a secret. And I just learned it because I took that uh, foundations course, um, even though I've taken a lot of neurolinguistic programming and other studies and so on, I, I discovered a secret, and that is we're always in the light. We don't always see it, you know, and we've got all these doubts and fears. Oh my God, if I do this, then this will happen. If I do that, then that will happen. But, you know, there's no certainty in life. It's the only thing that's 2020 is hindsight. So it doesn't matter which direction we take, it's always going to be right. It's always going to be lead us into the light. So, and we always come out the other side. Somehow or other, we track on and we get through. And I think that's a secret that it's so easy to forget when you're stuck or you're living in fear. So for me, that was, I mean, I always knew it, but to, to, to get it, you know, to, to actually begin to believe it was, was a pretty powerful belief for me. So who am I? Well, you heard my little um, bio, but the interesting thing about my bio is that my life hasn't turned out the way I thought it was going to be. You know, when I was once in Montreal, and I remember seeing a um, street graffiti, and it said, go back to your wife and 1.5 children, or go back to your husband and 1.5 children, you know. I, well, that's how life is supposed to be, right? You get married, you have a career, you get promoted, you live happily ever after, you retire, then you die, right? That's life. It doesn't work that way, at least it didn't for me. Um, so who was I? Well, I was born in Oxford. I still feel that that is my home. It's in my heart, although I have lived in this country longer than I lived in, in that country. Um, I got my undergraduate degree from Saskatoon. Uh, when I was going to go to Saskatoon, I had no idea where it was. Someone said to me, oh, my Lord, Saskatoon? You know, I had a friend who lived there. He'd never even seen the ocean. <laughs> and, um, yeah. <laughs> then I discovered Farley Mowat. He said, said, you stand on a gopher's hill and you can see as far as Asia. I mean, those prairies are amazing. They're not the ocean. But, you know, there's something else. So, yeah, um, then I did the most stupid thing of all after I came to Alberta. I met someone and I went to India with him for six months. Well, being in India was a shock, believe me, especially in those days. But coming back by bus was a bigger shock. It was horrible. We came all the way through the Khyber Pass into Iran, into, uh, from Iran into uh, Turkey and then Yugoslavia and Greece and Europe and, and home. It took a month. Um, we cracked the windshield in the bus coming through, uh, coming through Afghanistan just after Peshawar in India. And so we stopped in Afghanistan for a few days and they repaired it with plastic. Didn't keep the grit or the sand out we trekked through, uh, you can't do this now, Iraq and Syria, 
It was, it was brutal. You ate sand, you slept with sand. It was everywhere in the bus. Anyway, we got to Iran and they cleaned the bus out and they put a decent windshield on. And the guy that was staying at the hotel said, you know, if you're going out, and I was kind of young and knew it all, as if I don't know, and he said, you know, you can't wear your miniskirt out there and your t-shirt. You've got to, you've got to cover. You won't be safe if you go like that. And no one tells me what to do. So, um, yeah, I walked 100 yards and then ran 100 yards back to the hotel and immediately covered from here to here. You know, they were right. He was right. And I learned something about culture at that time that was pretty important. So, and I felt ashamed of having taken a bus all that way. You know, whereas now I think, oh my Lord, that was a really eye-opening experience. And now I could talk about it. But for many years, I didn't talk about it because it left such horrible memories. Um, so I worked for the government. I was a typical civil servant in a variety of ways. And um, I was even a vice president of the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees. Can you imagine that? And I actually joined with a couple of others and we took the president to court. We lost. And that's another experience I don't talk about very much. But just recently we had a reunion. Oh, wow. And I realized how much I had learned from that experience as well. So um, then, you know, still working for government, I was downsized, a victim of a hostile corporate takeover of one department to another. So I went to another quasi-government agency. I, oh yeah, I can tolerate change. I'm really good at change. Well, I hated it. I hated it. I remember I'd go in and cry every day. And uh, I remember my mother saying to me, don't let this organization destroy your life. But it felt like it was, because I felt like I was such a fish out of water. You don't realize how much the water that you're in colors you until you're suddenly in a different color of water, a type of water. So that was pretty, pretty traumatic for me. But so I went on. I mean, I was desperate, and I knew I had to start learning. So I, I got my doctorate in organizational change and transformation. And as I was graduating, the guy, one of the guys that I was graduating with said, you know, I'm just starting this new program in Switzerland. You never know what's going to happen in life. He said, I, I really liked the advice you've given me on my doctorate. You're the only person who actually sat down and gave me some good information. He said, I want you to come and teach leadership and culture in Switzerland in this new program. I think I was going to say no. <laughs> I went, I, yes, I've made it, finally. So it felt like success, and for nine or ten years, I went back every winter, sometimes from January to May, sometimes from January to March. But coming back, I didn't know what to do with myself. I felt really stuck. I mean, being in Switzerland was a bit like being on an oil rig, you know, because I was in the middle of nowhere. It was a very small school, and we weren't close to anywhere. There was one bar where the students congregated every night and went crazy. Uh, but for the rest of us, you know, it, it was beautiful to look at the mountains and the valley, but how often, uh, how long can you do that before you start to go a bit stir-crazy? So it was a bit hard, and then coming back, I was stuck. So it felt like I was a bit of a failure because I didn't have that job, you know, where you go 
onward and upward. So my coping mechanism was to translate this experience into white space. So white space gives you the opportunity to, and the, if you have the consciousness to do it, it gives you the opportunity to color those dark moments and bring them into the light. Because you can put into that white space anything you want. And when I got my doctorate, I had to write a paper on what to do with my life now that I had obtained my doctorate. And it went to a, a professor in England. And he said, you know, I need to talk to you. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, I really enjoyed your paper. He said, my advice to you is to keep on doing what you're doing. I didn't seem like much at the time, but I've never forgotten the advice because my, it, it counted in many respects, as did my career, my traditional beliefs, which were that career is linear, family is linear, you know, you, you marry, you have kids, you live, they go to school, they go to university, you live happily ever after. Um, when you choose to believe that you're a failure, it starts to touch your soul. So, it was really hard. But then, because I'm a bit of a bookworm and a theorist, I discovered something called chaos theory. Let me take you into the next quotation. Because this is a really important part of my learning. It's by Dr. Brian Arthur, who's at the Santa Fe Institute. And he wrote this in Waldrop. He said, so the question is, how you maneuver in a world like that? And the answer is that you want to keep as many options open as possible. You want to go for viability, something that's workable, rather than something that's optimal. A lot of people say to that, well, aren't you accepting second best? No, you're not. Because optimization isn't well-defined anymore. We don't know what the best way is. Uh, what you're trying to do is to optimize robustness or survivability in the face of an ill-defined future. It's all happening so fast, we don't know how to deal with it other than to do what's best. And that, in turn, puts a premium on becoming aware of non-linear relationships and causal pathways as best we can. He says, you observe the world very carefully and you don't expect circumstances to last. Nothing lasts forever. There are surprises, many surprises along the way. And this is called emergence. So the stronger and more resilient we are to deal with those, the better for us. This is something that I, I teach in business, which is called the innovator's dilemma. You know, we're all going along and we're doing our best and suddenly it feels like it's working. Everything's going great. We keep on doing what we're doing, except that the circumstances outside change. And so we get that H1 graph. We go down, and you see this all the time. You know, Sears just went under, um, all kinds of organizations. 
They, they don't survive very long because they keep doing what they're doing and then suddenly, whoosh. I mean, one of the reasons that Apple is so successful is because it keeps on adapting all the time. So as an organization, what we need to be is in the H3, we have to be constantly adapting. As people, we need to be constantly adapting and building our strength so that we can keep on moving forward. Because we keep on doing what we've always done, then it's suddenly not enough. So that brings us to the conflict that most of us live with, the paradoxes in our life. This what we know for sure. Well, we don't know a lot for sure. I would never have thought that what's happening in the United States would have happened. So, uncertainty. Wow, there's a lot of that these days. Order and control and power. What doesn't work? You've got to let people have freedom. We've got to appreciate our freedom and our equality. We've got to do um, we've got to work it out as we go along. There's no roadmap of doing what we're told. You know, I, I always used to say to people, you know, when you're stuck, well, just have someone tell them what you've got to do and then do it, and then you'll be fine. Well, it doesn't work that way. It's not as easy. So, and remember, we passed the test. Wow, we're made. I got my doctorate. I made. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to enjoy and realize that that's just the beginning of your learning journey, that it's lifelong. Um, working to live and burnout, you know, that's very easy to do if you get too hung up on what you expect. Our board, we're excited. We're not burning out because we don't know all the answers and we're having a whole hell of a lot of fun trying to work it out as we go along. That's a different kind of feeling to, you've got to do what I tell you you're doing. You know, this is the map we've got to follow. So we want to plant trees. We have a, a vested interest in, in, in growing our future. Um, we see money as just one reward. There are many rewards, human connections, human relationships, friendships, happiness, joy. Those are rewards too, and they're pretty important. And then finally, inspirational stories and narratives, and we all have them. We often forget them, but we all have them. You know, a friend of mine, I just rediscovered a friend of mine from 50 years ago, living in Spain, of all places. And he, he can't get over my life, because it's kind of been up and down all the time. And he said to me, I don't have a watch. And I said, well, why don't you have a watch? So he said, well, I took it off when I retired at 65. Why would your time only belong to your employer? Wouldn't your time be yours? You'd still want your watch because you're doing so many exciting things in it. I mean, I like my watch. It doesn't belong to my employer. So seeing time in a different way, and I still think a watch is pretty valuable, however you see it, is, is really important. So my route was to paint on that white palette, um, to color it with what I thought I could do. And, and then, you know, the themes keep coming back. What are you good at? Well, I'm, I'm a speaker. I'm a writer. I'm, uh, I, I care for others. I'm a dreamer. I'm a bit of a visionary. 
Nothing I had done was wasted. Even though I felt some shame sometimes about it, it all helped me to be what I became, even the union stuff. So it was there all along. I just didn't know it. So what I learned is that it's not about control. We don't have a lot of control over the long term. We can control some parts of our immediate future, but we don't have that much control over what's going to happen. So, but we always have a core, a set of values that we believe in that are really important, and they stay with us as we grow and mature, and they start to become our palette too. They start to become the colors that we, uh, we draw on the blank spaces. So when you're really in a stew and you don't know what to do, vote for me. No. When you're really in a stew and you don't know what to do, bring in the light. You know? Think white space. Draw on the white space. You've got all kinds of things you can draw on it with. And you can color it. Some, and you can color it any damn color you want. Some organizational theorists actually have theories around colors and how organizations change according to the color they become. But it's up to you. You can color your space. So here I am, after all of that, a lifelong of constant change, talking to you, working with this amazing board, and we're pretty cool. And you know, we've got white space all around our office. We meet three or four hours a week, and it's covered in scribbles and drawings and, and arrows and circles because we're so excited about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, you know, I sense when I talk to you guys when you're here and when you talk to me outside that, that you're picking up on that excitement too. It's generative. So it's an exciting and an emerging journey, and I'm so happy that I'm a part of it, and I'm happy that you're part of it too. So, you know, if any of you, I know Harvey Weinstein isn't exactly apropos these days, but he did direct a few good movies, and one of them is, um, I've forgotten it. <laughs> um, yeah, the movie has escaped me, but anyway, Robin Williams, who plays a major role as a psychiatrist in the movie, uh, says to the brilliant guy in the movie, uh, Goodwill Hunting, right, thank you, thank you, yeah, yeah. He says to, uh, to, the, to, to Matt Damon, who isn't playing Matt Damon in the movie, he says, well, you know, just because you read Oliver Twist doesn't mean to say you know what it's like to be an orphan. And isn't that the truth? We read about all of these things, but we don't understand viscerally what it is. That's why I don't like classroom teaching from a textbook perspective, because the textbook tells you about change, but it doesn't tell you really what it is to live it. You've got to experience it. So there's knowing, there's the knowing what the textbook says, all the steps. You know, I was once in the bank and, and, and someone was saying, that someone in the queue was, was really upset because they'd just lost their partner. And, and then the, the teller started talking, you know, repeating Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the stages of grief to her. That wasn't what she wanted to hear. She just wanted to hear that she was okay. 
You know, so there's knowing all the technical stuff and then there's the heart stuff, the relationship stuff. So, um, yeah, we, we're aware that there's a difference between knowing what change is and doing change, and that's pretty exciting. So we're always redesigning our plane. We understand that we've got to keep changing because times are changing, which is why we're moving from a, a ministry-centered um, organization to a mission-centered organization. And we have tools that can help us do that, and we're delighted to embrace them. Our tools, if you can move on, a new, a new approach to ministry, to membership, which is mission-centered, not minister-centered. So we want you to be involved in the directions and the outreach that our organization is going through with an emphasis on the relationships between people and between groups. Um, a new approach to personal and organizational transformation, which is through the Q process. And then spirit groups, which is organizing our center into small groups that are dedicated to the things that light up their hearts and social justice concerns and equality concerns. And finally, a new approach to membership building and to budgeting and fundraising to support our activities because we have to move on. We have to change. So uh, the Q process, which I personally attempted for 21 days, is really powerful because it's a 21-day process for identifying your trigger spots, the, po the points in your, in your body and your heart that, that kind of stop you from moving forward. And it's a tool for personal growth. So we go through, first of all, identifying the things that really bug you, like having someone in the queue in front of you push in or, you know, step on your foot or something, to the major events that have left you feeling less than and insufficient and inadequate. So let me tell you who I want to be. I want to be confident. Yeah. Well, she looks pretty confident to me. That's not always how I feel inside, believe me. Real, I want to be real. I want to be kind, loving, you know, capable, connected, wise, integral. I'm not any of those things all the time, but that's who I want to be. And then this is who I'm not. A disappointment, bad, unlovable. You know, that's how I sometimes feel I am. So I have to transcend those feelings. And... Doing the Q process allowed me to work with that, to work with the things that brought those feelings to, a, to my surface and then work through them. And so as I did that, I moved into more light for myself personally and I became a more life-affirming person. And I, I don't know whether that's recognized by the people around me, but I certainly feel that way about myself. And I think, you know, my, my mother doesn't still keep getting into the same conniptions that she was getting into before, and I'm able to handle them better, etc. So, as I became more genuine, I felt more at peace here, and I felt people becoming more genuine with me. So I sensed that we're moving, and I'm moving into that redesign process of the innovator's dilemma. 
And that's pretty important. So um, we can, you know, we're working together in small spirit groups, which is our next move. So if you move on to the slide, um, the spirit groups become a tool for us to develop relationships and to build a greater sense of what we are about, our purpose, our personal transformations become translated into our center transformations, into our organizational transformations, and they act like a ripple. We can have a bigger effect on our community and on our city and on the world. There is no magic bullet. There's nothing out there necessarily that's going to help us. But together, with our hearts in the process and our hands taking action, we can make it happen. So we have to work through our shadows. That's a bit of work, but we can do it. And I, I want to end with this story. And I don't know whether any of you have heard of Archie Cochrane. He's the father of the Cochrane Functional Medicine Institute, which is about um, medicine and looking at how it works. And he's a very, he was a medical doctor and he was working in the, uh, after the Second World War as a medic. And he said, and he came into the scene, which was a prisoner of war camp in Europe, and he said, the ward was full, so I put him in my room as he was moribund and screaming, and I didn't want to wake the ward. I examined him. He had gross bilateral cavitation and a severe pleural rib. I thought the latter was the cause of the pain and the screaming. I had no morphia and just aspirin, which was to no effect. I knew very little Russian then, and there was no one in the ward who did. I finally instinctively took him in my arms, and the screaming stopped, almost at once. He died peacefully in my arms a few hours later. It was a wonderful education about the care of the dying. I was ashamed of my misdiagnosis, and I kept the story a secret. You know, we're all looking for the magic bullet, someone out there to fix us. But in the end, the thing that's going to pull us through is our relationships to each other and the caring and the sharing and the loving that we can provide to everybody that crosses our path. So thank you, everybody.